Well, we are coming to the end. We've got tonight and one more lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you know, this series is kind of an unusual one. It's called The Pessimist's Guide to the Universe. It's a really odd way to start a brand new year. Ecclesiastes, much like the book of Job, is for anyone who has ever asked God the question, why? Why? And that's why Ecclesiastes feels so sad at times, as though it was written by a pessimist. King Solomon was the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, but now he's old and he's disillusioned by life itself. So at this point, he certainly does qualify as a pessimist. He spent a lifetime buying anything he desired. He has tried everything he could imagine but his heart is still empty. And now to try to describe how he feels, he uses a Hebrew word, hevel, and he uses it 38 times in just 12 chapters. King James Version of the scripture in English uses the word vanity as a translation. Many other Bible versions today use the word meaningless, but in doing so, they miss just a little piece of this word because hevel means vapor or fog or smoke. So Solomon is not saying your life has no meaning. He's saying that the meaning of life is never quite clear. It's like smoke. It's nebulous. It's undefinable. It's unreliable. You go to try to put your hand on something and it's, it's no longer there. It slips through your fingers. That age or that stage or that moment is gone. It's uncertain. Sickness comes and pain and heartache and, and bad days. And then sometimes you go and it all just seems to blow away for a while and, and you feel alone. And it's like fog. It's sometimes impossible to hardly tell which way you're going. It's, it's hard to tell. Uh, how to see clearly. You can never quite catch up with smoke. And so it's like hevel, it's fog or smoke or vapor. And we're jumping into chapter eight tonight. And uh, chapter eight, Solomon begins with a couple of questions. Who is as the wise man? And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine and the boldness of his face shall be changed. He begins this chapter with these two questions. He wants to know, are you understanding what I'm saying about life? Are you getting it yet? Do you have enough wisdom to properly interpret what is happening to you in your life? He says that if a person is wise, it will light up their face and it will take the boldness that's literally the harshness out of their interactions with other people. Because a wise person understands that while they can't control their life, they can still enjoy their life. They can still enjoy people and they can still enjoy moments. And so if you're wise, it lights up your face and it takes the harshness out of your countenance. There are some people you can almost tell when they walk into the room, that they're having a bad day. You can almost tell when they come around the corner that they're frustrated with someone or something. Can I just say that that should not be what people think about apostolic Christians? 
that, oh my goodness, they must be religious because they look like they were baptized in dill pickle juice. <laughs> that shouldn't be how people think about us. If you're wise, your countenance lights up. Isn't it wonderful to see somebody and you know they're filled with the Holy Ghost and you're filled with the Holy Ghost and there's what you might call a kindred spirit or there's a, a witness of the spirit and uh, it's a beautiful thing. I got to see some precious elders this weekend, Bishop Billy and Sister Betty McCool. They were here in Fredericton years ago when I was just 12 years old and I have remembered them fondly all these years. I, I hadn't seen them forever, saw them last year and got to be back in, in Knoxville. And uh, those people, they're so sweet. It's like they've marinated in the Holy Ghost for all those years in between. And instantly there's a connection and instantly there's precious, beautiful fellowship. If you're wise, you let the Holy Ghost go to the outside, not just stay in the inside. People are always telling me, I teach this sometimes when I'm talking about you know, our lifestyle convictions. People say, well, I've got Jesus in my heart. And I always think that sounds a lot like a hostage situation. He's buried way down there. We can't even tell he's there. You got him in a windowless cell and you never let him out. Let him out. Let your joy, let your peace, let the love of the Holy Ghost show on your countenance and let it take the harshness out of your interactions. In this chapter, Solomon, he just kind of scatter shoots. It's going to feel like he's jumping around a little bit. He talks about being wise enough to obey governmental authority. Of course, in his day, that's the king. And in his day, he's it. He says, be wise enough to obey your authority in the government. But along the way, as he's doing that, he gives us some principles that not only apply to Old Testament literal governments and kings, but they have a spiritual application like this one. I love this verse. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who can say to the king, what are you doing? What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Solomon says, who has the authority to critique the king? Nobody, that's who. And if you keep his commandments, you will be blessed and you will be protected. True in the Old Testament, true in the New Testament. So a wise person, the Bible says in Solomon's words, a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. In other words, they obey the king's commandments promptly and wholeheartedly, time and judgment. How much more should that be true in the New Testament? But, but here's the thing about that first verse, verse four, where the word of a king is, there is power. Now I know Solomon is talking about himself, an Old Testament king, and if he gives a commandment, people just scramble to obey. But I gotta tell you, where the word of our king is, there is power. If Jesus says you're healed, you're healed right now. There's no other problem. There's no other issue. If Jesus says today's the day you're walking out of that trial, today's the day there's not a devil in hell that can stop you from walking out of that trial. Where the word of a king is, there's power. But there are many things that we don't have power over. Have you noticed this? The older you get and the wiser you get. See, they give, give me the wise end of the church. We got the kids and we got the young people and they say that your frontal lobe isn't even fully developed until you're 25. 
And I know for sure that's true. And I'm suspecting that they've messed up the numbers and it's actually something more like 65 because I'm not sure I'm there yet. But um, <clears throat> they give me the wise end of the church. So you folks know, you've lived life long enough to know that there are some places where we don't have power. And here's one of them. <clears throat> there is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. You can't retain your spirit when it comes to the moment of your death. And Solomon says it even more plainly. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Everybody's gonna die sometime. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. What Solomon just told us is there's not a person alive who can add one minute to their life when God decides it's time for you to die. But don't you dare despair about that. You rejoice because the reverse is true. Yes, you can't add one minute to your life when God decides it's time for you to die. But you hear me. There's not a devil in hell. There's not a person on earth. There's not a sickness in your body. There's not a random accident of any kind that can kill you or take you until God decides it's time for you to die. He holds your life and your death in his hand. Just as there's no escaping our lifelong war against death, Solomon says, this business about wickedness, there's also no escaping our lifelong battle against sin. Now this is Old Testament, this is Solomon. And the Holy Ghost, he doesn't know anything about it. That's New Testament. But let me tell you, he's already pointing the way. There must be something greater and bigger and more powerful than us because we are quite powerless in life. There's gotta be something more. Thank God that between Malachi and Matthew, something changed. And in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law in the perfect time Jesus came in the perfect time Jesus died was buried rose again and today he has shed forth his spirit upon us there's a power greater than what Solomon ever knew anything about my goodness Ecclesiastes 8 and 11 because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it will be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Now, Solomon just made an allusion that you've probably made to the criminal justice system of earth. In earth's criminal justice system, sometimes a sentence against an evil work, an evildoer, a criminal, is not executed speedily. And Solomon uses that to make this comparison. In the criminal justice system, sometimes we get frustrated because the punishment isn't meted out to that evildoer speedily. And we say, how would they ever let them get away with that? They're not being punished. But he makes this comparison. In God's eternal justice system, 
the biggest challenge sometimes is to, to understand that justice seldom seems to be executed speedily. We pray and it seems to take forever. We serve God faithfully and sometimes it seems like people that blaspheme God's name, they get away with all kinds of things. Sinners continually do evil and yet they often seem to prosper and righteous people consistently, they do good and yet they often seem to go unrewarded and that's when we have to realize that yes, life sometimes feels unfair but our days here are as a shadow, Solomon says. Life is not the end. And you listen, God will have the last word at the final judgment. At the final judgment, God is gonna right every wrong and reward every deed. And you know the scriptures that says, don't be weary in well-doing. In due season, you shall reap if you faint not. So there's coming a day when God sets it all straight. Well, that's fine, Pastor Raymond. That's fine, King Solomon. But I'm not living then. I'm not living on the final day when everything gets set straight. I'm living today. And today hurts. And today is hard. And today, it doesn't seem fair. So what do I do today until I get to that day? What do I do now until I get to God's final judgment? Well, you might need to remember the words of King David's choir director, a man named Asaph. There's no doubt that Solomon knew who he was, maybe knew him well, because Asaph worked in the palace and Solomon grew up in the palace during the reign of his father, David. And here's what Asaph, David's choir director wrote. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. I felt like giving up. I felt like nothing was stable under me. I felt like in life, everything was shifting sand and it wasn't working and it wasn't right and it wasn't fair and my heart was in pain and my mind was in confusion and my steps had well nigh slipped. You know why? I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked around and I said, God, this isn't hardly fair that here I am keeping your commandments. Here I am going to church. Here I am praying and giving and doing everything I can and I've got all kinds of problems. I've got sickness in my body. I've got trouble in my family. I've got all kinds of stuff. And I look around at people that blaspheme your name and they seem to be wealthy and healthy. Everything seems to be coming up roses for them. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a painful piece of writing, Psalm 73, and it was a song. Asaph was the choir director. That was a song. <clears throat> I know it's an old song, but I'm glad we don't sing that old song anymore because it was a depressing old song. But thankfully, Asaph had a place where he could go to get some perspective. And I don't know how the structure of that old psalm was. I don't know how many verses there might have been in the musical arrangement, but it finally got to this. When I thought to know this, it was just too painful for me. 
When I got thinking about how unfair life is, when I got thinking about good people hurting and wicked people laughing, when I got thinking about un, unfair things and unjust things, when I got thinking about all that, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood something when I got in the sanctuary. I understood that today is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for the wicked. They're gonna get what's coming to them. But you know what else? It's not the end of the story for me either. It's not the end of the story for the church, for the redeemed. It's not the end of the story for the saints of God. When I got my little old self into the sanctuary and I began to hear the songs of Zion and I began to see the worship of the people of God and I began to feel the presence of God then I understood that this is not the end there's something more in fact I can feel that something more while I'm teaching Bible study tonight I feel it when I see a saint of God go like this I feel it when I hear somebody sing a song I hear it and I feel it and I sense it and I know this is not the end. And that's why, that's why I'm in Bible study tonight. I'm not in Bible study because I'm teaching Bible study. I was in Bible study before I could ever form words to say anything. My parents brought me to church. I was too little to teach a Bible study, but I've been in Bible study and Sunday morning, Sunday night for as long as I can remember. It stretches back six days decades for me but you know what I'm so glad for every moment every service every song every sermon because when I get into the sanctuary of the Lord that's where my perspective changes yes life hurts but God is righteous and God is going to deliver me it's either going to happen today or next week or some sweet day. But let me tell you, my God is faithful and my God is fair. Oh my, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then he says this in verse 26. It was a favorite verse and a favorite chorus. They actually sang this in Singapore. It was a favorite verse of Barb Willoughby, our great missionary. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Sometimes my heart shakes and quakes and I get afraid and I get depressed and I get sad and I get gloomy, but God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. I can trust his word. My goodness, I, we just need to take a little praise break right there. Would you lift up your worship to the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Yes, yes, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. It's gonna be okay, child of God. Today is not the final say. Today is not the last chapter. It's gonna be all right in your life. Ha, woo. I have this confidence in God. It comes from his word. It comes from my time in his presence. There's a confidence that everything's okay because God pilots the ship of my life. There is so much about life that just isn't fair. 
Good people are reviled as though they are wicked and wicked people are revered as though they were good. And there's so much about life that we will never fully understand. And no matter how much wisdom we attain on this earth, we'll never quite figure all this out. So in the face of all this futility, in the face of all this uncertainty, Solomon recommends something. Now this is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. So it's probably worth taking his recommendation. Do you know what Solomon recommends when you get looking around at the futility of life and you get looking around at unfair things and hard things and difficult things? Do you know what he recommends? Here's what he recommends. Have fun. That's what he recommends. Somebody say, have fun. Turn to your spouse, especially if they're frowning right now. Smile as big as you can. Say, have fun. You don't believe me? Here's what he says. Then I commended mirth. I recommended having fun because man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat, thank you Jesus, and to drink and be merry for that shall abide with him of the labor, the the, of, the, of his labor, the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. Solomon says, enjoy what you've got. Enjoy who you are. You might not be much, but you is all the you you got. So just enjoy life. You say, that's not very scriptural. I just read it from the scripture. It's scriptural. Have fun. Stop being so gloomy. You're making us tired. Stop being so gloomy. Jesus is still in control. I know there are days when the tears fall unbidden. I know there are moments when your heart quakes inside because you're afraid. I know there are times when the enemy is attacking unfairly. I know there are seasons when friends fail you. But whatever you got left, Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. Because God gave you that life. This is Solomon's advice <clears throat> given for the fourth time. Chapter two, chapter three, chapter five, now chapter eight. Enjoy every day you are given. Go to the craft store, buy one of those plaques. Live, laugh, love. Hang it up somewhere where you'll see it and live, laugh, and love. Because Solomon says you got no assurance that tomorrow's gonna be better or even if tomorrow will arrive. So today, live, laugh, love. Now they make a lot of money off Solomon's advice, don't they? You know why you need to enjoy today? Because every human being ever born has an appointment with what Solomon calls one event. And that event, of course, is death. And it eventually comes to us all. In chapter nine, he says, all things come alike to all. There is one event. Someone say one event. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, but also to the unclean to the person who sacrifices, that worships God and goes to church. There's one event comes to them and to him that sacrificeth not. So in the day of death, in that day of the one event that every human being is headed for, 
as is the good, so is the sinner. And he that makes a vow, he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath and won't make a vow. So it doesn't matter whether you're on the good or bad side of character, of reputation, of life. One event is coming to us all. And he says, there is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Nobody stand. I'm not trying to be terribly light or disrespectful, but nobody stands up at a funeral and says, about time. <laughs> nobody does that. First of all, the family would throw stuff at you. But because it never is time, we hang on to those moments. We, we want them longer because that one event seems so dreadfully, horribly unfair. This is an evil under all things that are done under the sun, that there's that one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live and after that they go to the dead. Most suicide notes throb with the feelings and the issues that Solomon raises in the book of Ecclesiastes. You read suicide notes. Life is unfair. I hate myself. I hate life. What's the use? This isn't right. There's too much pain. Is it any wonder, Solomon asked, that so many people are obsessed with their own mortality? Is it any wonder, Solomon asks us, that so many people throw their lives away trying to find pleasure or popularity? Is it any wonder that many people just give themselves completely to achieving wealth or experiencing wickedness? And Solomon uses the word madness. He says, there's a kind of madness in their heart while they live because they know that death is coming and they just can't deal with it. And so they throw their lives away on pleasure, sin, wickedness, wealth, power. It's unfair. It's hard. But Solomon says, in the middle of it all, you've got today. And so today... Enjoy your life. For to him, I love this scripture, for to him that is joined to all the living, as long as you're still breathing, there's hope. Somebody say, there's hope. If you've got breath in your body, there's hope because you can pray a prayer at Bible study tonight that could change everything by the time you wake up tomorrow morning. While you're breathing, there's hope. While you're living, there's hope. And then he says this, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> a living dog is better than a dead lion, but he means a little more than it appears on the surface. And for all of you that have Fido at home, Fido's definitely worth more than a dead lion to you. But see, dogs were despised in Bible days. And yet he still writes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Even a despised animal like a dog in his day is better than a dead lion, the king of the beasts. He's saying that whatever life you got, whatever your day is like, it's still better to be alive in God's presence, breathing God's air, able to talk to Jesus. It's better than being dead in the grave. Because where there's life, there's hope. Everything that Solomon writes about the dead here, by the way, which is so negative and so depressing and sounds so final and futile, 
everything that Solomon writes about the dead can be reversed and applied to the living. He says, the dead don't know what's happening on the earth, but the living do know, and we can respond to it. The dead can't add anything to their reward or their reputation or their character, but the living, oh, we can make changes that impact all of that. The dead can no longer relate to people on the earth by loving or hating or envying them, but the living can take time today to cherish the people that are in your life. So Solomon is emphasizing that we should seize the day because someday death will end every opportunity that we have on this earth. So again, he says, live Joyfully, Somebody shout that back at me. Say, live joyfully. Live joyfully. With the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. I know life feels like vapor, smoke, hevel, fog. That's your portion in this life and in your labor which thou takest under the sun. Here we go again. This is the fifth time. Solomon says, enjoy your life. Live joyfully. And if you're married, guys, enjoy your wife. Your home will be blessed if you're not too busy, not too preoccupied, not so driven, not so tense, not so frustrated that you can't just relax and enjoy the life that you have together. You hear me? Every day that you have with your friends and your family and your church family is God's great gift to you. You can never get today back, so don't miss the opportunity to celebrate the simple things in life. Guess what? I had enough health to get to the house of God tonight. I had enough mobility to get myself into the sanctuary tonight. And when I came into the sanctuary, I felt the presence presence of God and all of a sudden something shifted and I thought this life isn't so bad I've got Jesus on board in my life oh my goodness that's worth a praise break right there thank you Jesus even the wealthiest man in history said, you don't need a lot of money to be happy. In the end, it's the simple things in your life that are the most memorable and meaningful. So enjoy life. Turn to your friend or your spouse or turn around to somebody behind you just to irritate them too. Smile your biggest, toothiest grin and say, enjoy life. If you're too grumpy to if you're too grumpy to do that, you are too grumpy. You, you've seen that sign. I, I used to bank at a different bank here in town and the sweet little teller had this sign at her wicket. She may still work there. It may still be there. I'm at a different bank now. It said, sometimes I wake up grumpy and sometimes I let him sleep. Enjoy life. Some of you will get that on the way home and run into a snowbank. Verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going someday. So you can't do anything for Jesus in the grave. You can't improve improve your life or, or do something for God or matter 
in the grave. So if you get a chance, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Carpe diem, seize the day. Whatever you can do for yourself, for your family, for your friends, for your church, for the kingdom of God, do your best and do it now. Because your opportunity and the ability to take advantage of that opportunity, it won't last forever. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Sometimes have sincere earnest young ministers ask me, you know, how did you follow the call of God and how did you know you were called into ministry and all of that? And, and my answer is probably not what they're looking for because I know they're looking for the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and lightning bolts and falling horses and all kinds of stuff, but it's not that. From a, a small child, just a young teenager, just when I had an opportunity to do something for God, when I was asked to do something in my church, when pastor said, could you help with this? Just whatever my hand found to do, I just tried to do my best. I'm sure I didn't always do my best. I'm sure there are many people far more talented or capable, but what a life it has been just doing what I could do for God. You don't have to stand on a platform or preach from a pulpit to matter for the kingdom of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Because someday when your opportunities are over, you're gonna be so glad you took those opportunities to do something for God. Now this is Solomon and I know it's Old Testament, but he's right because here's what Paul wrote in the New Testament a thousand years later. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Listen to me, all you employees. When you go to work tomorrow, whatsoever you do. Oh, I thought that was just about church. No, whatsoever you do, do it heartily. Do it as though you're working for Jesus. Because the truth is, on your job, you are Jesus' representative. So you do your job as though Jesus is your boss. Do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. Why? Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve, not your boss, not your job, not your career. You serve the Lord Christ. Your ultimate final paycheck does not come from the company you work for. Someday there's gonna be a great judgment and a great reward day for the people of God. And God has us in all kinds of occupations and all kinds of careers and all kinds of workplaces and the reason is he needs light to be shining into the dark places and so when you go to your job tomorrow I know it might be frustrating you might have more drama queens per capita in your office than anywhere else in the city and it's just hard to deal with them but you go there and you think Jesus I'm showing up for work today I'm going to work as if I was working for you I'm going to smile I'm going to be kind I'm going to take time to pray and God, if I get a doorway to talk about your goodness, I'm gonna take that opportunity. Do it as unto the Lord and not unto man. Now this next little verse is one of the most often quoted verses from the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a powerful piece of writing, Ecclesiastes 9 and 11. 
Solomon begins by saying, I returned. That means I took a second look. I took a closer look. I considered it in more detail. I considered it again. I returned and here's what I noticed. I saw under the sun that the race is not always to the swift. Nor the battle, it's not always to the strong. Neither bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. It's not always the fastest person that wins the race. They could trip. It's not always the strongest army that wins the battle. Something could happen to their resources. It's not always the wise that have the ability to make money and earn bread. It's not always wealth that comes to people that have great intelligence or great understanding. And people who have great skills and great talent, they're not always favored. They could be obscure and overlooked. And here's Solomon's conclusion about life and about the human family. But time and chance happeneth to them all. It's one of the most quoted verses in the entire little book. And rightly so. Because as Solomon looks closer, he begins to figure out exactly what is so frustrating to him about life. Now you're smart. This is a biblically literate audience. You've probably already figured this out. If you've been paying attention over the last three weeks, you've probably already noticed the same three things. And if you haven't noticed it from this Bible study or this book of the Bible, you've noticed it just by looking at life. There are three challenges with human existence and they frustrate us. They are maddening and they are so consistent. Three challenges with human existence. The first challenge is the march of time. That time never stops. It just keeps going. How many parents are in this room? Would you raise your hand? How many grandparents? The best ones, yeah. How many great-grandparents are in this room? Wonderful, we got some great-grandparents in this room. Don't you know that every once in a while you get thinking back and you just want to freeze time? The, those, not the terrible twos, those cute threes. You, you just want to freeze time for a little bit. And we say stuff like that to each other, don't we? I just wish I could keep them. I don't know how many times uh, I've heard Beverly or even our, our daughter or our daughter-in-law say, I just wish I could keep them like this forever because they're precious and they're cute, but time marches on. And here's what happens with time. And this is what Solomon feels is so unfair. Time eventually erases us, eventually you go a couple of generations past the, the, the mark of your funeral and you will be a memory to your family, but time will erase you in a great way. And that's not fair. It doesn't seem right, but the march of time is one of our enemies. And then there's a second challenge in life. It's the inevitability of death. That no matter how healthy we try to be, no matter how careful we try to act, no matter how many protections we put around us, we know that eventually everybody dies. The statistics on death are pretty solid. One out of one dies. It's 
And so, some of you, that's the most profound thing you've heard all week. <clears throat> and so death eventually equalizes us. No matter how wealthy you are, you're gonna die. No matter how good you've had it in life, no matter how many friends you've had, eventually death equalizes all of us. Time erases us. Death equalizes all of us. But then the worst one, the worst one, these are our enemies, time and death and this one, the randomness of chance. Time and chance happeneth to them all and then at the end there's death. And you know what chance does? This random thing where you just never know. You could walk out of the church, slip on the ice and break a leg. Please don't. You could drive home and somebody totally not your fault could come out of an intersection and hit you. It's happened. And you could end up injured and it's not your fault. You didn't do it. You did nothing wrong. The randomness of chance. And you know what chance does to us? It humbles us. Because we realize no matter how good I do this, no matter how safe I am, no matter how careful or paranoid I become, I can't prevent every random thing in life. Chance humbles us. And that, brothers and sisters, right there, those three are what we've seen from chapter one all the way up to here in chapter nine. Solomon is frustrated because of those three enemies, the march of time, the inevitability of death, and the randomness of chance. <clears throat> and that is what frustrates Solomon. Life is hevel. It is smoke and vapor and fog. Solomon doesn't find that it's very fair. We work our hardest and we do our best and we obey God's commandments and we live a godly life. We're faithful to our church and we pray and fast and give and serve and we love our spouse and we raise our kids and we pay our bills and we plan for the future and then time and death and chance mess everything up. And it happens to all of us, doesn't it? But before you throw up your hands in fear or frustration, you remember something. You remember to throw up your hands to God in faith and trust because even when life seems totally out of control, we can be confident that our God is still very much in control. He steps over time because he lives in eternity. He steps over death because he conquered death and hell and the grave and chance it doesn't matter what bad thing happens to you there is no blockade for a God who specializes in the impossible one prayer can turn around a disaster but you could call Ecclesiastes the book of exceptions because it's just filled with all kinds of things that shouldn't happen to good people now, its writer is the same wealthy king who fell madly in love with that peasant girl in Song of Solomon. This is the same wise king who compiled all those powerful life principles in Proverbs. But now he's a lot older and he's a lot more experienced and not all of his experience has been good. And so Solomon just feels empty. He has lived long enough 
just like some of us, to realize there are a lot of exceptions in life where it just doesn't work out like it should or like we thought it would. A lot of us have lived that long, seen good, godly, faithful people, and we just said to ourselves, they left us far too soon. We've seen a lot of exceptions. Solomon realizes I don't really control my destiny. I don't really control much at all. Time and death and chance are the enemies. He says they catch us all like fish taken in an evil net or birds caught in the snare. But then he swings it and he says, but none of that means that we should just throw away God's wisdom because time doesn't define our existence, not when we're headed for eternity. And death isn't the end of our lives, not when we're headed for a resurrection. And chance doesn't have the final word, not when we serve a God who can do miracles. And so Solomon, he's heading in for a conclusion. Next week, we'll finish this strange book in your Bible. It seems so depressing at the beginning. And if it's bothered you, and if the questions of Ecclesiastes have nagged at you, please don't miss next time because when we get to the end of this Solomon turns it around and there's a beautiful sunrise at the end of this dark night of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 a couple more verses before we leave tonight dead flies oh here we go dead flies dead dogs dead flies man this is a bad book dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor so doth a little folly in him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. No matter how beautiful a perfume might, might smell, it can quickly be overpowered by something small that is decomposing because that's a stronger smell. And in the same way, your character and your reputation, they take a lifetime to build. Your character is the internal you. Your rep reputation is the external you. And your character and your reputation, they take a lifetime to build, but they can be destroyed by one small moment of foolishness. And so as Solomon prepares to take us to the conclusion of the book, he wants to tell us something really important here. Just because life can be random, just because it's sometimes a little unfair, don't you throw away God's commandments, God's covenants, God's principles, God's rules, because you will be blessed when you follow them. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walketh by the way, his wisdom faileth him, and he saith to everyone that he is a fool. In the ancient world, I'm sorry, all of you lefties, please don't raise your left hand. In the ancient world, the right hand was the place of power and honor, but the left hand in the ancient world represented weakness and rejection. We even see that portrayed when Jesus speaks about the final judgment with the sheep on the right hand being received into everlasting reward and the goats on the left hand being rejected into everlasting punishment. Some cultures even today still consider the left side to be unlucky. And for all of you left-handed people, since we've offended your dead dog and your dead flies, 
Might as well pick on the lefties for a second. Our English word sinister. Everyone say sinister. That comes from a Latin term meaning on the left hand, sinister. That is what Solomon is alluding to when he says a fool's heart, a wise man's heart leans to the right, but a fool's heart leans in the wrong direction. And he says anybody with wisdom can recognize a fool by the way he walks. He's not talking about your physical gait. He's talking about what actions you get involved in. His outward actions betray an inward attitude and you can recognize a fool by how they walk. In verse five, he says, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. So <clears throat> leaders create this problem. Leaders can mess this up. It proceeds from the ruler. Here's the problems. Folly is set in great dignity and the rich sit in low place. And then he says, here's another challenge. It comes from leaders. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Sometimes a leader, a ruler can make foolish decisions when they don't honor the experience and the wisdom of their elders. And Solomon gives a couple of examples here. These are examples that bring great harm. Number one, when spiritual immaturity is given a place of prominence and spiritual maturity is made to take a back seat. Let me tell you something about CCC. This is a multi-generational church. And we don't just love our young people who are full of inner energy and life. We love our elders because they bring wisdom and experience. And it's a tragedy when somebody who's spiritually immature, they're exalted to a place of prominence and somebody who has spiritual maturity is ignored. I've said before in this pulpit, one of the challenges with social media is that so many of our elders and our pioneer ministers, they were never on social media and it's like it erased them because we're so busy following what somebody ate at a restaurant that we don't have time to talk to an elder who has life wisdom. Here's the second thing. Solomon says, you know, I, I've, I've seen something really strange. And he said, rulers do this. He said, I've seen servants on horses and princes walking like servants. Here's the second thing that leaders can mess up. When unproven people are given position and recognition and experienced veterans are ignored or pushed out of the way. And so that's why it's important that we have all generations represented in a church like ours. Chapter 10, verse eight, he that diggeth a pit shall fall into him. And whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent will come through that hedge and bite him. Whoso removeth stone shall be hurt therewith. He that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Now those all seem like pretty random warnings, don't they? But they carry the same theme. Listen very carefully. Be very cautious when you are removing things. When you're removing earth from a well, 
When you're removing bricks from a wall, when you're removing stones from a quarry, when you're removing trees from a forest, you be very careful when you're removing things because you could inadvertently create a very dangerous situation that could hurt you or hurt somebody else. And brothers and sisters, Solomon's talking about rock quarries and walls and trees and woods and serpents and hedges and pits. But here's what I would say to you. If that's true in the natural, it's doubly true in the spiritual. And that's why Proverbs says, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Before you think about discarding a conviction that was preached and taught and lived by the previous generation, be sure to discover why they embraced that conviction in the first place. All too often I've observed the current generation of apostolics focused on winning the approval of our culture. But the previous generation of apostolics, they were only focused on winning the approval of Christ. And it showed in their commitment to church, in their lifestyle of godliness, it showed up. You be careful before you remove something. You pray long and hard. You seek counsel from wise people and elders before you just go removing things. Solomon said you can get in a lot of trouble and if it's not you, It could be somebody following behind you. Be careful when you remove things. Two more verses and we're done. If the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge, if the ax is dull and he doesn't sharpen it, then must he put more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. Now this is pretty simple. It sounds like it could be in the book of Proverbs. The duller the ax is, the harder the work is. And the duller your relationship with God is, the harder your life will be. The darker your dark nights will be. The more difficult and long your trials will feel. The more discouraged and despondent you'll become. The duller your relationship with God is, the harder your life is. Solomon says this is the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed in life. Even if everything does not turn out the way you planned, you are still far ahead of the fool and you've also pleased God by following his principles. Last verse for tonight, verse 18. By much slothfulness, the building decayeth and through idleness of the hands, the house droppeth through. The building is gonna start to fall down and the roof is gonna start to leak if you're lazy about maintaining it. Without consistent diligence, without constant vigilance, your spiritual life will automatically decay and begin to fall apart. And Solomon should know because that's exactly what happened to him. He started so well with every privilege and every honor, inheriting the great kingdom of Israel from his father, David. But Solomon's kingdom decayed as his life decayed. His authority decayed as his consecration decayed. That's what happened to Solomon. 
but it does not need to happen to you and to me. Wise living includes daily spiritual disciplines. We come to Bible study, it's a discipline. We come to church, it's a discipline. But you need more than just Sunday church and Wednesday Bible study and Friday prayer meeting or missionary service. You need daily disciplines where you are in the word and where you're talking to God. And that's why wise people follow the principles of God's word. Time and death and chance are gonna catch up with all of us somewhere that's why it's important that you have a relationship with Jesus that weathers the storms of life. Would you lift up your hands at the end of Bible study tonight? Thank you for putting up with my old raspy voice. But would you lift your voice? You've got strength in your voice. And just lift up a praise to the Lord. I know life is not always easy and it's not always fair, but I assure you, your God is in control. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's still on the throne. He still has all power. He has power every day of your life. He has power in the day of your death. There is nothing that is impossible for our God. Thank you, Jesus. That praise and worship to the Lord would feel even better if you'd just stand to your feet and give him a standing ovation of words. Just let your words ascend to the heavens. I thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and your grace, for your mercy, for your power. I thank you for your love toward the children of men. I thank you, God, for your faithfulness to your people. Oh, I worship you tonight, Jesus. I thank you tonight, Jesus. I worship you, God. Thank you for the Holy Ghost, the comforter that is with us in all the ups and downs and ins and outs, the sadness and the gladness of life. Thank you for your spirit. You are ever faithful. You are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You are the comforter that is within us. You are the hands that are under us. Underneath are the everlasting arms. I worship you today, Jesus. Oh, I thank you, God. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus.